Section 32 of The Golden Web by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 11 Bitter Words. From the pit of the world, from the law courts, hot and crowded, where the atmosphere was heavy with strife, the modern battleground, where the fighting was at least as dramatic over the souls of men as on those other fields, reddened with their blood, Dean escaped to find himself, after a few hours' journey, in this strangest of churchyards upon the bare hillside. The church itself, squat, square-towered, and tumbling into decay, stood out like a watchtower upon the cliff. The churchyard, bordered by low gray stone walls, seemed to contain little more than a dozen or so of graves, and from one of these Dean turned away, and with Winifred by his side, commenced the long descent to the level of the sea. The half a dozen who had attended the ceremony out of curiosity had already melted away. The parson, with his book under his arm, had gone into the vestry, but neither custom nor age had failed to rob those few sentences of their wonderful, threatening pathos. Even Dean was a little moved. The girl who walked by his side carried still with her that impenetrable mask, but there was something more like real sadness in the steady gaze of her unseeing eyes. The air was filled with sunshine, the singing of larks, and the calling of the white-winged seagulls wheeling about their heads. Below, the sea had receded to its furthest limits. The creeks were dry. The shore was piled with masses of fragrant seaweed. The grass-grown dikes, which led down to the tower, stood high and dry like ribbons across the land. Little sandy spits were visible, far out from the shore, and only the white top posts marked the way of the tidal river out beyond the island of seagulls and sand. Dean, after his anxious days, and his tearing ride from town in the great motor, felt the peace of all these things, showed it in his face, felt it in his heart. The last few days had taught him a good deal, Never had he been so weary of his place in the great world as he was that afternoon. Even that little ceremony in the wind-swept churchyard, the coffin lowered into the grave, the heaping of earth, the simple words spoken by the bareheaded vicar, and even that little ceremony had left its impression. After all, how small the difference between death and life, ignominy and greatness. His own reputation had many times during the last few days trembled in the balance. What was the value of that, even, of all his wealth, compared to the great primeval facts of life? His thoughts suddenly turned to the girl by his side. He looked at her pityingly, looked at her, too, with curiosity. She had accepted his coming almost as a matter of course. All the time, though, he had known well that she was suffering. She had been wordless, as though her grief was something so great that no outward sign of it could be anything else but pitifully inadequate. In her quiet, graceful walk, the very reserve, the negativeness, so to speak, of her coloring, her speech, her looks, she still represented to him an insoluble enigma. Was it possible, now that her brother had gone, that she would speak? In any case, the silence between them could not continue much longer, for already they were down on the marshes, and, as though by common consent, had turned seaward, 
towards where the lonely gray tower stood out on its little sandy eminence. "'Tell me, Miss Rowan,' he said, "'what are your plans now?' "'My plans,' she repeated, without turning her head. "'Yes,' he went on. "'I know that your brother's death is a blow to you, "'but remember that it was inevitable. "'It was a thing which was bound to come, "'and in many ways it was kinder and better "'that it should happen like this. "'You could not have chosen for him "'a more peaceful ending, "'a more peaceful resting place, "'for anyone with even the faintest beliefs "'in the future life, could anything be more beautiful than the rest there, with the eternal lullaby of the sea in his ears, free from encroachment, save the encroachment of nature herself? She turned to look at him, and the calm scrutiny of her level gray eyes somehow disturbed him. It is easy for you to talk like that, she said. You are still young and strong, and if the pendulum of fate swings against you one day, it pays you back the next. You are selfish because you cannot help it. You cannot even realize the hideousness of death. You cannot realize it because it comes to other people and not to you. You are a little unfair, Miss Rowan, Dean answered. You must remember that your brother was a doomed man. Yes, but why, she cried. He was younger than you. There were no worse things in his life. Always he was battling with failure and disappointment. And this is the end, to sit opposite a doctor and be told you may live a month, three months, a measure of time. Oh, it's easy to think about it for other people. Think of yourself going about with the knowledge in your heart that as the days passed one by one, they brought you nearer to the end, that every morning when your eyes opened, instead of the joy of life, would come once more that terrible fear. Your brother was not a coward, Miss Rowan, Dean said. A coward? You mean that he did not show his sufferings? she exclaimed. That does not mean he did not suffer. Oh, I have heard him in the nights when he thought he was alone. I have heard his agony. And that is the end. She turned and faced a little stone church on the hill, the rudely enclosed churchyard, in the far corner of which was still visible the bare heap of mold. He felt it coming. He felt the strength pass from him day by day. He who had never known what it was to live who had never known the days of riches or success or power, there he lies, God knows for what purpose, to what end. Dean walked for a little way in silence. It seemed to him that the girl's bitterness was scarcely reasonable, yet he realized that at such a time reason loses its power. His last days, at least, were as comfortable as possible. Comfortable, she exclaimed scornfully, he lived in hell. "'You are not blaming me by any chance?' Dean asked quietly. She turned on him, and the mask seemed suddenly raised. There blazed into her eyes a great fire. There trembled in the notes of her voice a wonderful passion. Her form seemed to dilate. They were walking now upon the top of the dike, and she seemed to have been suddenly transformed into something vengeful, some grim representation of fate. "'Blame you?' she cried. I tell you that I hate all you smug, successful, phrase-making men, who succeed where he failed. What are you that he was not? He was brave, he worked hard, he was honest, courageous. He was all that a man should be. If you were ever these things, you at least were not more. And to you comes wealth and easy days, honor, a long, peaceful future. London, the world, is full of you, grubbing your way through life, thinking, 
what magnificent creatures you are opening your pockets to help with your alms those who have fallen those who if there was justice upon the earth should be in your places this is unreasonable dean declared coldly unreasonable who said it was anything else she cried what reason is there in life in death in success or failure can you tell me the laws by which life is ruled can you find them anywhere at the base of any man's success or another's failure reasonable indeed one man swims and another drowns who can tell why one man grows rich another starves and as often as not it is the clever man who starves and the fool who grows rich there is no reason in those things there is no reason in my hate for you and all those who have lived easy lives and who go on living them while he lies there she turned back once more and pointed with outstretched hand towards the little church the wind blew her skirts about her disturbed for once the trim uncompromising arrangement of her hair the color had come into her cheeks at last dean wondered why he had never before thought her beautiful i'm sorry you are feeling like this he said i did what i could for your brother be silent she interrupted fiercely you did what you could to ensure your own safety you sent him on a desperate unworthy mission to warm his way into the confidence of a drunkard to steal for you to be your jackal what did you care what the consequences might be what did you care so long as your own reputation and wealth were saved he was to be one other my poor basil one of those to be crushed beneath the great wheels it is not fair replied dean to make such statements your brother knew his risks and he took them knew his risks she repeated you mean that because you were on your feet when he was on the ground you would make use of him like any other lump of mud you would spurn with your foot if you had not found use for it he did your bidding poor fool but where he failed i succeeded you have to deal with me now and i think that it is my turn to make terms dean looked at her curiously at last he said you are going to admit your possession of that little document at last she admitted i am going to tell you that i have it and to name your price he asked there was a queer little sound in her throat like an unnatural laugh my price yes that is another matter end of section thirty two